family. It's good to see every one of you here this morning. Thank you for uh, choosing to worship Jesus uh, with us today. John already beat me to the punch, but it was kind of looking forward to welcoming you to the final worship gathering of the decade. That's kind of cool. Uh, this is it. The, the, nine, the teens are done. We're rolling into the 20s. Kind of crazy to think about. I, it's weirder for me to think about when you think about it historically and you just kind of, you think about history like in American history in the 20s just seems so, but we, we, are, we are living that history now for our own century and someday it's just going to be all written down and people will read about it. And, but man, it just goes quick, doesn't it? Pressing into the 20s of the 2000s. Um, that's insane. Time goes fast, doesn't it? It goes faster here, I think. Yeah. Let's pray, and uh, we'll get right down to work this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for rescuing us and redeeming us and reconciling us to yourself through Jesus. We thank you for giving us life according to your word and through your spirit. It's not something that we can do for ourselves. And so, Father, we don't want this morning to be just something that we do out of routine or in our own strength. We ask and we expect that you will work for your glory and for our good through your spirit as you bring our hearts to life again and you give us eyes to see the truth and ears to hear and that um, love for ourselves would decrease as we, we rightfully turn to love you, our creator and our rescuing king. And in so doing, we find life and joy and the peace that we just read of and, and sang about. So Father, I pray that you do these things for us, uh, for your fame and for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So today we conclude our brief series in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And by now you are familiar with the theme of this book, In Darkness, Light. In Naomi's most difficult season of life, the father's far-reaching kindness proved to be the light which would dispel the deepest darkness of her night. And while the book bears Ruth's name um, and features Naomi and Boaz, along with Ruth, the story really isn't about them, is it? In fact, what we've learned is the story of Ruth is about our father and his far-reaching kindness in darkness, light. Uh, this familiar theme belongs to Naomi, and it belongs to Ruth, but not exclusively. It is also the theme of Advent, the season that we've just pressed through. That is also the theme of the gospel, and it is, in fact, the theme of all Scripture. Jesus is the light of the world, and what's so compelling is as rebels, you and I, I mean, the gospel of John tells us we actually hated that light. We, we hated the light as rebels. Nonetheless, in mercy, Jesus pursued us anyway. He could have left us alone in darkness and rebellion. He would have been just to do so, but he pursued us and his light dispelled and overcame our dark, darkness and he gave us life. And this is the theme of my life, and it will be uh, the theme of your life as we repent of our rebellion, as we believe in Jesus as our rescuing king, and as we submit to him as our uh, rightful king, and as we respond to him as our healing king. In darkness, light. Jesus dispels the deepest darkness of our rebel nights. So as we've worked our way through the short book as a way to help ourselves engage with the story, even to feel the story, we have, with each sermon, kind of just momentarily imagined scores of music to accompany each scene. So for those of you who have eye-rolled every time I said that, no fear, we're not playing that game this morning. Um, however, I do want to say, after last Sunday's sermon and the whole Hans Zimmer jest, somebody actually took me seriously, and they did, in fact, compose a track that can be listened to as you read through Ruth. And humble brag, uh, they're part of my MC. So I found out on Friday when our missional community met for dinner, he hadn't told me. He shows up, it's on his phone. Uh, he put it together in GarageBand, and it works. Like, it, it really, really works. It was fantastic. Um, so if you want to listen to it, I'm sure he'd be happy to share it with you. But this morning, let's change things up a little bit. Let's step away from scores of music. And I want to consider each scene in the book of Ruth, not as scores of music, but as seasons of our heart. 
We left off last week at the end of chapter three, and we'll jump into chapter four here in just a moment. But first, again, by way of review, chapters one through three, but let's, again, let's look at them as seasons of my heart or seasons of life. Chapter one being tragedy, chapter two being emptiness, and chapter three being hope. So in chapter one, the tragedy, this is a hard, hard season of life for Naomi. It's the kind of season that you don't choose for yourself. It's one of brokenness, barrenness, loneliness, and helplessness. It's real, real personal hardship. The hardship we saw in chapter one was brought on by Elimelech's rebellion, Elimelech being Naomi's husband. The man whose name means my God is king turned his back on that very king. And he rebelled and he takes his family with him. His rebellion led to his death and his rebellion led to the death of his two sons and his rebellion led to the absolutely worst season of life that his wife, Naomi, now a widow, had ever experienced and probably never imagined for herself. And I think one of the early lessons that we see in Ruth is this. Sometimes we find ourselves in hard seasons because of our own rebel choices. We've all been there. But sometimes we also find ourselves in those hard seasons because of the rebel choices of other people. We are hurt by them or by the consequences of their rebel choices. And that's Naomi in this story. Naomi is now alone except for one widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's stuck with her. She's far from home. She's helpless and hopeless. And in this season, Naomi believed that she was beyond help. In fact, we saw her even change her name from Naomi, meaning sweet, to Mara. That's what she wanted to be called, Mara meaning just bitter, to make the point that she believed she was beyond hope and beyond help. And like Naomi in these seasons, we too believe and we too say, I'm beyond help. Bitterness and despair grip us in these seasons, and we're blinded by them. We, we actually believe that we are beyond that help. But the, 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 uh, the father sends word to Naomi. Uh, that word is that he has visited his people in kindness. And that word, while she's still in Moab, exposes for Naomi the emptiness that's in her soul, and she turns around and she heads for home. Do you know the Father does the same thing for us still today? He sent Naomi a word, but he sent us the word, Christ himself. Um, in kindness, Jesus, being the light of the world, comes as, as the word, and he speaks truth into our lives. He opens our eyes, and he exposes our need, rebellion, and he brings us home to the Father in kindness. And that brings us to chapter 2, Naomi is home. But her heart needed so much healing. And so this is, even though she's home, it's still a season of emptiness for her. You, you come out of tragedy and you know, you just know emptiness and need for restoration. And so in this season, she was able to recognize her need for help, but she still had no hope that anything about her life could or would change. She's home and she's back in proximity to the father and she begins to experience his kindness through people. First, she sees God's kindness in Ruth, who sticks with her and goes to work to support her. And then she sees God's kindness in Boaz, a landowner and a relative who treats Ruth with such kindness. Boaz looks personally after Ruth's welfare. And while she works, um, he cares for her. He invites her into his inner circle. And then he sends her home to Naomi with way more food than the two of them could ever possibly need. Like it's just kindness after kindness. And so in chapter two, we see Naomi's hope rekindled a little bit, but just enough. The hope is rekindled through God's kindness. Uh, his far-reaching kindness brought her home from, the, from foraging in the fields to now feasting back at her father's table. Another reminder that God the Father always satisfies his hungry kids with good things through Christ ultimately. And God's far-reaching kindness had begun to heal Naomi's heart slowly, rekindling the hope that was once just completely absent in Naomi's hopeless heart. And so we watched, we watched broken, empty Naomi move from bitterness and despair to sparks of hope. And then chapter three then is a season of hope for Naomi. Naomi first believed that she was beyond hope and help, and then she was willing to acknowledge her need for help, but she still believed that she had no reason for hope, no reason to believe that anything would ever change her life, or her heart. But now in this season, her heart is beginning to believe. It's hope is rekindled through God's kindness. And so now her voice is saying, yeah, I, I need help, and I actually do have reason for hope. 
And in this, in this newfound hope, Naomi comes up with a plan to ask for that help under Jewish family law. This is what we saw last week. Ruth agrees to the plan that Naomi comes up with. She proposes to um, the only person they believe can and will help them. That's Boaz, the kind farmer. And Boaz promises to deliver that help as their kinsman redeemer. That's a term that we learned last week. A kinsman redeemer being a relative who at great cost to himself pays to rescue and restore a family member who finds themselves just in deep trouble and powerless to get themselves out of that trouble. There's one catch, though, we saw. Boaz tells Ruth about a relative who is more closely related and therefore needs to be given the first shot at redemption. Boaz can't just take it. So he sends Ruth home that morning with the promise that he will not only get to the bottom of the matter quickly, but that he will redeem, he will rescue them if the other relative declines. And that's where the story left us last week. Naomi, now nourished by proximity to the father, and experiences of his faithful, undeserved kindness, her hope has grown now into a confident expectation. And did you know when you read the word hope in the New Testament, uh, hope understood through the lens of the gospel, it's not a hope as, man, I hope my favorite team wins in the playoffs, or I hope, you know, just kind of this, "Mm, I hope, but probably not. Hope in the New Testament is always expressed for a follower of Jesus as confident expectation. And that's what's blossomed in Naomi's heart now. So now instead of saying, I am beyond help or I need help, but I have no hope, Naomi believes that she needs help and that she will be helped. She will be helped and she will be restored. We saw this confident expectation at the conclusion of chapter three in verse 18, where she told Ruth, wait, my daughter, you need to wait. Just wait until you learn how the matter turns out for the man, speaking of Boaz, he will not rest but he will settle the matter today. That's no longer just hope. Hope is a beautiful thing, but that's not simply hope. That is a confident expectation that God the Father will prove himself faithful to Naomi. She has radically changed from where she was um, just earlier in the story. And so now we turn to chapter 4. And we see what we're going to see is if Naomi's confident expectation, if her restored hope in God will prove valid, if she'll be vindicated, I mean, can she actually trust God or will she meet with disappointed expectations? Uh, So let's read chapter four together. If you want to turn there, uh, well, I'm turning there, if I can get it, Ruth chapter four, and uh, we'll just pick it up in verse one, should be on the screens for you as well. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, hey, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took, and Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down, and then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, hey, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one in town besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, no, I'll redeem it, I'll do it. So Boaz said to him, hey, uh, one more thing I forgot to tell you. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, oh, yeah, I can't do that. I I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. So you take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. 
Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, his care provider, And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab, and Abinadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So let's summarize what we just read. We kind of see this story unfold in three settings, right? We see a courtroom, we see a wedding, just very briefly, and we see a neighborhood baby shower. Uh, Those are the three settings for the story. So first, Boaz goes to court. That's what the author meant in verse one when we read, um, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. We're just, we're talking about the gate of the city. And in this day and age, um, the gate of the city was where business was transacted. It's where the politicking happened. Um, It's where legal matters were centered. It was kind of the heart of everything that went on in the city. So Boaz goes to court, that's what he's doing, and he asks 10 of the city elders to preside over these legal proceedings, and he invites the potential redeemer. Who Did you notice he remains nameless in the story? Uh, he invites him to join him. The potential redeemer is referred to in the story only as friend, he, and redeemer. He goes, he goes without a name. And so this guy joins Boaz along with the 10 elders. So we're in court, and Boaz presents his case, and maybe as you were listening, you're like, man, Boaz should not have been a farmer. He should have been a lawyer. It's pretty good. Um, So he presents his case. He explains that Naomi needs help dealing with the property of her deceased husband. Like, she needs money. Um, She needs needs, uh, a rescuer, a kinsman redeemer to come in and and, and help. And so the way Boaz initially presents this case, you noticed, it kind of makes it sound like a kinsman redeemer would have a very small price to pay up front and then everything to gain through his personal investment because, I mean, he'd he'd be acquiring land. He'd be acquiring land. Basically, the kinsman redeemer, the way that Boaz framed what needed to happen, um, he would have the opportunity to do something good for Naomi. That's noble. And so he would look good in front of his community and even potentially make a profit in the long run because he would acquire this land all for a small upfront investment. Wise move, right? So why not? And the unnamed kinsman redeemer agrees. Yeah, man, I'll do that. I'll do that. No problem. But Boaz wants this. Like he, he wants this. I don't know if he wants the land and everything else, but by this time, he, re- he wants Ruth. And so he's anticipated the relative's yes answer. He kind of set him up for this, and he has a plan. And so with some strategy, Boaz goes into greater detail, clari- clarifying the cost. And so he lets the relative know, hey, man, it's, honestly, it, it's more than just investing in some land to help out Naomi. Uh, What I need to tell you is in becoming the kinsman redeemer, you will also have the responsibility for Naomi's uh, widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. And, you know, by the way, don't forget, she's a Moabitess. She's an outsider. Uh, You're also going to need to provide financially for both Naomi and Ruth. So it's not just the acquisition of the field, but now you're going to sponsor Naomi to the grave and you're going to financially sponsor Ruth for the rest of her life. Hey, and um, just one more minor detail. Like, this is old school. This is OG Kinsman Redeemer stuff. Like, we're going back to Grandpa's day. Um, You actually need to help Ruth get pregnant, right? Like, you need to help her have a baby. And and one more catch, like, you're going to help her have a son, so you're going to keep trying until it's a boy, and then he's not going to take your name. Like, he will not be named after you, and... um, 
this land that you gain and this deal actually will go back to him. So he'll keep his daddy's name, his original, his, well, what should have been his father's name. He'll keep that name. He'll keep the land and it's all going to stay in Ruth's family. This venture is going to prove to be very costly to you. It's going to be a long-term sacrifice for the good of another person. That's what redemption is. Long-term sacrifice for the good of another person. So now, the potential kinsman redeemer who at first eagerly just kind of jumps on this thing, he backpedals and he says, hey, what initially sounded like a pretty simple legal proceeding with a low cost and a solid long-term investment opportunity is turning out to be way more um, than I can handle. So he's re- he reevaluates, he changes his mind. And I, I honestly, I don't think it's that he doesn't want to do it. I think he still would want to do it. What he actually says in the text is, I can't do it. I don't have the ability, um, probably financial. He doesn't have the financial capacity to serve as a kinsman redeemer. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my, my own inheritance. Um, he would threaten the inheritance that he would have to pass along to his own kids. And so he says to Boaz, take my right of redemption yourself. I, just, I, I can't do it. And so the author here is letting us know that the guy just simply lacked the ability to serve as a redeemer. He could not redeem Naomi and Ruth. We're talking about complete inability. And guys, I just want to, I think, I think this is a point that we need to see in the text. We, as we go through life, we are acutely aware, whether we say it this way or not, that we need redemption. Something in us needs to be redeemed. And we are surrounded by these unnamed potential redeemers, if you will. And so we run looking for redemption. And what we're going to find, what you will find, guys, every time we run to anyone other than Jesus or anything other than Jesus, you may find somebody who initially offers, like, it looks like they could, it looks like they could restore in my heart that's broken. It looks like they could satisfy the longing that is within me. Every one of them will turn out to be this guy. Every one of them. They will lack the ability to serve as your redeemer. They will lack the ability to do for your soul what you most desperately need to be done. Jesus is the only redeemer. He is the true and better Boaz who is able, willing, and eager to redeem you. He has the ability. All right, so, so this potential kinsman redeemer passes the right of redemption to Boaz and they officially affirm the transaction by publicly exchanging a sandal. Awesome, right? Um, the declining kinsman redeemer takes off one of his shoes and he gives it to Boaz. And this was just the custom of the time. It basically, this act was just basically like signing a legally binding document and having the notary public stamp it and everybody signs off on it and then they shake on it. You do all of that in, in, by exchanging a sandal. So Boaz takes the home, he douses it in some baby powder, and he just throws it up on the mantle with the other sandals that, like, that's just what your house would look like. You would tell your family stories and your family history based on the random shoes that are stinking up your living room. Like, that's just how, how they rolled. It's his legally binding document. So he, they, they transact with the sandal. And then Boaz makes this public statement. It's directed to the elders, but also to the growing crowd. His statement begins and ends with these words, hey, you are, you are witnesses this day. So this is kind of a legal formula. Um, he makes his public statement. He says, you're gonna be witnesses to this. He says it, and then he says, you were witnesses to this. So it's this official court document. And in this public notice, he says, he announces, I have every intention, I'm doing it right now. I'm paying the price to redeem everything owned by Elimelech and his two sons, Malon and Chilion. And I am gladly taking Ruth as my wife to perpetuate Malon's family name and to keep what belonged to him in his family line. So he's saying, I am now personally responsible for the well-being of both Naomi and Ruth. I will sacrifice at great cost to myself for their long-term good. I swear it. That's what he's doing as a redeemer. That's what redemption is. And then this transaction is publicly recognized and stamped by the court. Uh, This happens when the crowd and the elders respond with, yes, we are witnesses. They're just saying to him, we heard your legal statement and we receive it and we approve and we will hold you accountable. But in this moment, it becomes more than a legal transaction. The crowd and the elders are deeply moved by Boaz's sacrifice on behalf of the ladies. And so they offer Boaz a blessing. They ask God to make Ruth like Leah and Rachel. 
And if you know your, your Old Testament history, you know that these two women were essentially Israel's founding mothers. God used them to build the house of Israel out of nothing, where the family did not exist. God gave these two women sons through whom he would build up his family. And so they're praying that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah in this way. And then the crowd points to Boaz and they said, Boaz, may you be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And Tamar, so just like Rachel and Leah were like the mothers to all of Israel, Tamar would have been essentially the, ans- the mother for the grandmother, great-great-great-great-great-grandmother for every single resident of this town. This is where her tribal people would have settled. So they all knew her name. Uh, they all would have thought well of her. And so they're saying um, now to Boaz, um, this is our prayer for you. Just as we prayed the very best for Ruth and her sons were We're going to pray the same for you, that God would give you sons who will build up your family as well as God's family. Guys, this this community prayer directs our attention to very broken situations. We just don't have the time to unpack them this morning, but both Rachel and Leah, and especially, you you should read later this afternoon the story surrounding Tamar and the way God worked redemptively there. In both stories, God worked redemptively in the midst of just absolute brokenness and even relational chaos, rebellion, and suffering. And he dispelled darkness for these ladies with the light of his kindness. He did it for his fame, and he did it for the good of his people. And so what the crowd is saying is, the father has done this for Rachel, and he has done this for Leah, and he has done this for Tamar, and he is going to do it for you, uh, Naomi, and he's going to do it for you, Ruth. He will continue, because that's who our father is, and that's what our father does. He redeems. He works redemptively in our broken situation. God comforts his people, and the Father gives gladness in place of sorrow. That's who he is, and that's what he does for his family. And so the blessings are given, and the author immediately moves us along out of the courtroom and into Boaz and Ruth's wedding day. So now Ruth is no longer an outsider. She's no longer a, former, uh, a foreigner. She is legally part of God's family. She's no longer someone who does not belong with God's people. She belongs. She's no longer a Moabitess. Ruth is now a wife. And that's the transaction that happens when we are redeemed by Jesus. We are no longer outsiders. We are no longer those people who don't belong. We because of Jesus now are adopted in sons and daughters. This is the change that happens in, in, in our uh, redemption. We go from outsiders deserving of judgment to insiders and family members who will receive nothing but grace because of the work of Jesus. And this is where Ruth finds herself. And then the author brings us to the wedding night as well. Not with much detail, but just enough detail to know that the prayers of the people are answered. Ruth becomes pregnant, and then the author moves us along to the baby's birth nine months later, and Ruth has a son. First one is a son, and Boaz is like, all right, we got it. We did it. We had a baby boy. And the chapter closes with a beautiful scene. Naomi is surrounded by her closest friends. Um, They're all older women now. These are the old ladies of the town. Uh, the very women we don't have present in our town here, the grandmothers. But these are the women who have grown up with Naomi. These are the women who watched her walk away as her husband rebelled from God's people and took his family to a strange land. These are the very women who welcomed her back home to Bethlehem when she was broken and bitter, when her story was filled with death and barrenness and brokenness, just bitterness and hopelessness. These are the women. And these are the women who watched as God's far-reaching kindness brought Naomi home and slowly brought her heart back to life. These are the women who watched Naomi's barely rekindled hope fan into the flames of confident expectation in God. And now these women still surround Naomi, and now they're looking down in her lap where she is holding her grandson. And you you can guarantee that in this circle of women... Every one of them is smiling, every one of them is laughing, every heart is full, and every heart is glad. In fact, there would not be a dry eye in this circle. Tears of joy would be running down every cheek. You know, I kind of read this, and I'm like, man, Naomi is part of a missional community. 
Like, these are her people surrounding her. And we kind of chuckle at that. But listen, these are the moments in life, the joys and the sorrows that are best shared and needed to be shared in community. And think about this. These women have, they grew up with Naomi. They shared a lifetime of joys and sorrows. They saw her at her lowest point and still kept her in the family. And now they are celebrating with her as the father is kind to her. Guys, every one of us will spend seasons just like Naomi did. We will have those lows and we will have those highs and we need community within the church family just like these old ladies surrounding us in these moments. And when you're well, when you're in these better seasons like Naomi is beginning to find herself, you can bet there are people in our church family who desperately need to be surrounded by you. When their tears are dried up, and their souls are just empty, they need you around them to be just loving them and encouraging them and walking, being strong on their behalf in these difficult seasons. And so here these, here these old ladies are, and Naomi's friends look at her and they say to her, verse 14 and 15, Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left, he has not left you this day without a redeemer. We knew he wouldn't, We told you he wouldn't, even when you didn't believe us. We believed for you that the Father would not leave you without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. So first they speak of God the Father not leaving her without a Redeemer. And then they're speaking of Boaz. May his name be renowned in Israel. He's your Redeemer. But now they shift. Now their eyes look down at the baby and they say, he, so they're not speaking of Boaz anymore. They're speaking of the baby. He will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And so Naomi's best friends are looking at her and saying, Naomi, God did this for you. He did all of this. He sought you while you were still in Moab. He brought you home. Guys, that was spread out over 10 years, 10 long, hard years. He brought you home. He showed his kindness to you. He restored your heart. Naomi, your tears had been drained dry for all the weeping you did in your sorrow. You were bitter. Now your tears are flowing again, but they're tears of joy. Um, Your families use the term happy tears. Emma and I actually exchanged those words again last night. Happy tears. We were talking about just crying tears of joy. My daughter tried to explain to me what that was, and she was doing a beautiful job. Tears of joy. Happy tears. This is Naomi now. Her heart is restored. In kindness, the Father has not left her without a Redeemer. And what these ladies are saying as they look at at Naomi is, the Father never leaves his people without a Redeemer. He never has, and he never He never will. In fact, this child, Naomi, that you hold in your lap, this gift is just another demonstration of the Father's kindness to you because this little baby boy here is going to be a restorer of your life. And in your old age, this this boy will grow into to be a man who will nourish you when you can no longer care for yourself. So Naomi's best friends look at her and they say to her, God's kindness, Naomi, is healing your heart from your broken past and giving you hope for your future. Now, earlier in the story, we saw Naomi and we heard Naomi. And remember in chapter one, when she was speechless, she was speechless in her bitterness. Remember when Ruth said just some amazingly kind things to her and basically let her know that Ruth was going to turn her back on the only life that she'd known and stay with Naomi going back to this land where honestly her life could have been threatened because of the, just the mayhem and the harm that her ancestors had caused when they invaded uh, that place. And she gives it all up to go with Naomi and to care for her. And Naomi's got nothing left to say. She's just silent. Her heart is empty in that season. But speechlessness is not always bad. Uh, we're speechless for different reasons. In that season, it was her emptiness and her bitterness. But now Naomi is speechless again. She has nothing to say back to her best friends. But she's speechless because her heart is overcome by joy and overcome by gladness. And this short book has given us glimpses into different seasons of Naomi's life, seasons of tragedy, seasons of emptiness, seasons of hope, and even seasons of confident expectation. But remember, these seasons, this journey for Naomi's heart is spread out over 11 full years. We need to remember that 
Because so often we're discouraged when things don't change in a half a day or a day or a week or a month or a season or a year as 11 years. We need that perspective over time. It's worth noting also that most of these 11 years were lived in which season for Naomi? A hard one. 10 of those years were in Moab. Most of those years were spent as a widow. Most of those years were spent as a mom who watched her two sons die. Most of those years were spent in hopelessness and bitterness even, thinking that the father had abandoned her, thinking that nothing would change. These are hopeless years. Guys, our hearts may spend long periods of time in these seasons as well. Maybe they'll be sequential, like Ruth's story. It's kind of it's it's neat and clean, but it's neat and clean because a narrator is retelling the story for us. So we get it in chapters. We get the tragic chapter. We get the empty chapter. We get the uh, hope is being rekindled chapter. And then in chapter four, we get, we get heart restored. We get heart back to life where it should be, where there's confident expectation. However, for most of us, those seasons probably will not be sequential like that. They're going to be overlapping and very messy. In fact, our hearts may cycle through those seasons in any given day, or if you're like me, in any given hour. You just wake up or something bad happens. You're like, man, God has not been kind to me or faithful. He doesn't lie. He's forgotten me. And our hearts are just so prone to think that way. And we'll be bitter and we'll say things. And then we'll see some aspect of God's kindness. And there's this rekindling of hope. And then an hour later, we're confessing our sin and thanking God. Sometimes, but sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's a month. Sometimes It's a year. Our hearts are always changing and our seasons are always changing. But you know what was constant and unchanging through those changing seasons? Even if Naomi couldn't see it, God's far-reaching kindness. But you know what it took surrounding Naomi with her old friends, her missional community? I know it's not a missional community. I see it there. But her her neighborhood friends and Naomi uh, surrounded by Ruth and Boaz, God being kind to her through them. And here's the point of the book of, of, of Ruth, guys. The father never leaves his people without a redeemer. The father never leaves his people without a redeemer. We see this in Ruth, but guys, we could turn to any, any book in the Bible and see that same storyline. In fact, if we read the entire Bible today from front to back, Genesis to Revelation, you know what we could come away with? One sentence, the father never leaves his kids without a redeemer. And if we didn't have the scriptures here today, if we were just looking for stories in our own family that would bear out that same theme, we would not be at a loss. They abound. Um, And here's just one example from this week. And Jonathan, I'm glad you're here. And um, most of you know Jonathan and Rachel Johnson. You know that one of their sons, Boaz, has just faced an absolutely horrendous series of weeks, really season of life in Okinawa with physical challenges that came to a head over the last several weeks. Um, But Boaz is home now, right? He's home. And yesterday, Jonathan wrote this on Facebook, and so I saw it. And just, again, full disclosure, I don't, first of all, I don't Facebook stalk you. We're friends, and so he's in my feed. Um, But secondly, when I do see something that just really, just really, I find compelling, what did I do, Jonathan? I asked. Okay, so I asked permission. I said, may I, may I please share this with our family? So Jonathan wrote this. He said, I'm speechless. I'm overwhelmed. God knew exactly what my heart needed and longed for. This has truly been the harshest valley my family has ever seen. Yet Jesus came with us. He was with us every single step of the way. He went before us, connecting us with exactly who we needed to be with He knew I'd need to be in the squadron that I'm in. He knew I'd need the leadership I have. He knew we needed to be at the church we have rooted ourselves in. He had his hand in the compassionate, kind general pediatrician and the wise and skilled pediatric surgeon at Nanbu, a hospital down in Naha. He had his hand in the team between U.S. Naval and Tripler and his PCM. And so I've come to this simple conclusion, I can't thank enough It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. The other part of this is a longing of my heart since I arrived here just over a year ago is that I feel a sense of belonging, that I would know what it is to be a part of a community and a family that rides with you in the thick of it. I wanted to know a family that would weep with me in the midst of the harshness of life. 
Military and civilian and church communities have all proven that in such a powerful way. This wasn't just a local thing either. I know countless people rose up to pray and offer support from Australia to the U.S., to Japan, and other edges of the planet. And this is no exaggeration. I feel like the soldiers outside the tomb that were just like dead men, the guards were so terrified at him that they trembled and became like dead men. And then Jonathan quotes Matthew 28, 4, which says, they were so terrified at him that they trembled and became like dead men. And Jonathan writes, I'm not terrified, but his goodness makes me tremble. He's such a good father, y'all, y'all. He said that, y'all. And then Jonathan wrote this next sentence that I could write of myself and in a moment of when we are most honest, any one of us could say this. He said, I'm really good at being a rebel, but man, he's so good at loving me just where I am and who I am and exactly with what I do. So let the people know. Mm. Let the people know that my son was dying and has come home. Jesus saved my son, and above all, Jesus is king. Guys, we don't have to look outside our own family to be reminded of Ruth's theme that God the Father will never leave his people without a redeemer. Love you, man. Glad you're here. Thanks for letting me share that. Really glad that Boaz is home too. Yeah. And uh, man, I just want to say it was, it was just so encouraging for me to watch. Um, there were multiple communities that rallied around Jonathan and his family, but I'm so proud of you guys as a church family. For those of you who knew and were connected in some way, just the way that you loved and served. And man, your youngest son, that poor guy, he probably lived and spent time in more homes than he cares to recount. So we'll fund that counseling later, later in life. Um, but yeah, man, I'm just, I'm just really proud of you guys as a family. And that's not the only example we could point to. Um, many of you will not know this next person. Uh, some of you will remember her. She was a part of our family for nearly two years, but she's back in the States now. Uh, this is Stephanie Danza. Uh, we knew her as Stephanie Phillips. And um, again, about a month ago, she posted something on her Facebook page. And so I wrote her last night and just asked permission to share this with you. And she said, of course. She writes, what a story of redemption, renewal, and abounding love. The thing is, it's not my story, it's God's story. He has brought Joshua and I together in a beautiful way, out of the darkness and into his glorious light. Who would have fathomed that God would weave together a story like this for our joy and for his glory? God loves us so much that he gave us one another, that we would, want, that we would understand one another's hurt and brokenness and know how to love one another through the pain that we carry. This is the beginning of a brand new chapter that feels like a brand new book together. We have created a new family from the ashes and are astounded by God's great mercy to give us each other. And then she kind of shifts from telling her own story to, to, to trying to encourage people who are reading. She wrote, if you're in the midst of the storm, I want you to know that you can trust that God has a greater plan ahead. We don't know it just yet. But have faith, hold on tight, and cry out to God, ask for renewal. And she, she writes this, she says, I can still see myself crying out on the bedroom floor in Okinawa, tears just streaming down my face, asking God what to do because I had no idea how I was going to keep pressing on. And he answered me saying, I have something beautiful for you. She writes, he will comfort you. The father will pick you up. The father will restore. The father is in the business of redemption. He has something beautiful for you. Guys, just another example. The father never leaves his children without a redeemer. Jonathan, your story unfolded over, we saw it unfold over a very short period of time here. Stephanie's story has unfolded over four or five years, most of it here. But again, how, how long did it take Ruth's story of redemption to unfold? 11 years, guys. Like, that's, that's normative. Life will be filled with those seasons that are long. And we will constantly, constantly be interacting with people in our family who are in the midst of those seasons. And they need us, like the women of Bethlehem who gathered around Naomi for her good, 
to gather around, to weep with them, weep, to laugh with them when they laugh, and to, to keep believing and keep having faith and walking with them for their good. So in this moment, the ladies are looking at Naomi. I actually, I really, this might be my favorite part of the story. Naomi's still speechless. She's got nothing to say. And Ruth is strangely absent from the narrative. Did you notice this? Because of what happens? So the baby is on grandma's lap. Um, Mom's not there. And so the neighborhood ladies take it upon themselves to name the boy. And so decided this week as elders, we're going to make that a new tradition for Pillar Church of Okinawa. We, we're just, we, we are family and that's how we roll tight. So we just name each other's babies. Um, you know, how, how fun would that actually be? That would be a lot of fun. And the stories you could tell. So they name him Obed. Obed means one who serves. One who serves, he's a servant. Um, and Obed would go on to serve his grandmother well. And then from Obed would come a family of servants. In fact, Israel's most loved servant king, David, was Obed's grandson. Uh, but we know Israel's history. We know, we know David's history. David was a good king uh, most of the time. Uh, but he also tragically failed. And he was a really bad, adulterating and murdering king for long seasons. He would fail. And David himself would need redemption. So he was not that promised rescuing king that would heal and restore God's people. He would need a redeemer. But like Ruth and Naomi, David would find that redemption because, again, God never leaves his people without a redeemer. And that true and better servant king who would serve his redeemer would actually come from David's own line. Jesus, um, great, 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 just filling in all the greats, grandson of David, was actually the ultimate fulfillment of that prophetic word that the lady spoke over Naomi and her grandson in saying, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. He will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Guys, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophetic word. He alone is the rescuing king who is able to redeem you. Nobody else can redeem you. You cannot redeem yourself. He's the only one who is able and willing and actually eager to. He, he would actually like to redeem you. That's his, he came to redeem you. He came to submit to the Father's will by pursuing your redemption. It was his desire to obey the Father in that way. It's not burdensome to him. He wants to rescue you from your rebellion. Now, of all people in the story, we have to be careful to see ourselves where we belong in the story. And if we belong anywhere, we're most like Naomi. Simply put, we need a redeemer. We were helpless to change our situation. We were rebels condemned to judgment and powerless to reconcile ourselves to the Father. We needed a redeemer. This is your greatest need in all of life, redemption. And Jesus is the redeeming king who alone is able, willing, and eager to not only heal your heart from your broken past and rescue you from your rebellion, but also to give you real hope for your future. That is the storyline of Ruth. And that will be your storyline in repenting and believing the gospel, submitting to Jesus as your rescuing and redeeming servant king. So guys, as we press out of 2019 and into 2020, like forget the new decade for a minute. That's just kind of silly and overwhelming all at the same time. Um, so forget about 2020, like just finish today and press in tomorrow, to tomorrow. And many of you are pressing into the rest of today and tomorrow still in the midst of these difficult situations. We shared some stories today. Ruth's story is reconciled for us or resolved. You guys have met with some reconciliation and resolution. Stephanie has as well. But many of you are still pressing through difficult seasons that lack that resolution. But guys, our confident expectation is not in the resolution itself. Our confident expectation is in God our Father who never leaves his people without a redeemer. He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. He, will, he has rescued us and will continue to rescue us. He has restored us to himself, and from the moment he did, for the rest of our lives on this earth, he is working to redeem and restore our hearts into the image of Christ. He's more committed to that than you are. The Father is more committed to restoring your heart than you are yourself, 
And when you grow weary and tap out, the father never quits. He never leaves his kids without redemption. Let's pray. Father, we're pressing out of another year and into, into a new one. And there are people in this room that can look back and point to just point to your kindness all over. But there are people in our room who look back at this year and, and are hard-pressed to see your kindness. Um, their hearts are weak. Their hearts are doubting. Their hearts are fearful. They've cried out their tears. Father, I pray that in this coming season that you would show yourself again to be faithful, that you would show yourself to be kind, that you would restore their hope and fan the, the, just the small flames of their hope back into this confident expectation that you are a good and faithful father and that you will never leave them without redemption, that the, the ashes that they are sitting in now, the songs of sorrow that they are singing now will be turned into songs of joy and new life will come out of the ashes for their good and for your glory. Father, we thank you that all of Ruth points us to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of those prophetic words. He is our rescuing king. He is our redeeming king. Father, if there are any hearts in here like mine that are just inclined to pride, inclined to think that they don't actually need this redemption that the Bible speaks of. Father, I pray that you would give them the gift of humility today and that you would open their eyes to their own rebellion and their own need for redemption and that they would turn to you, they would run from their rebel ways and they would turn to you in repentance and belief. Father, looking to Jesus who alone can redeem and restore our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.